brief biographical caption you may read for Dr. Rosalie DeRosay would most likely include her educational background, consisting of a BA from our neighbor Bryan College, an MA from Northeastern Illinois State, an MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a PhD from the University of Illinois. It may also include that she has faithfully served as a professor at Moody Bible Institute, my alma mater, for 47 years. It may also read that she has published numerous articles, edited books, and written a book entitled Unseduced and Unshaken, The Place of Dignity in a Young Woman's Choices, which I wholeheartedly recommend. Um, but what you may not read about in the, is the undeniable influence that Dr. D has had on the students of Moody Bible Institute. When I was a wee college freshman, the upper classes, upperclassmen on my hall would give me advice on which classes to take. Over and over I would hear, you must take a class with Dr. D before you graduate. Well, I ended up taking two classes, one preaching class and one literature class. And I even had the privilege of serving as her TA for a year. I learned a lot in those classes, like how to structure a sermon or the crippling effects of sin and self and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, I even have here with me my actual notes from those classes. Um, there are a few highlighted quotes that if I were to write a biographical caption of Dr. D that I would include. Um, for example, she, she once said, I do not let my students write five paragraph essays. They were created in hell and they have been tormenting people ever since. Um, okay, maybe I wouldn't include that one, um, but I would probably include when she said that peace is chosen in the face of disturbance. Peace is not passivity or neutrality. It demands every spiritual muscle that you have. Honestly, what I treasure most from those years is the privilege of learning from her faithful example as one who loves the truth of the gospel, who carries herself with dignity, and who is fully devoted to Jesus Christ. So let's give a warm Scots welcome to Dr. Rosalie DeRosay. I am very honored to be here, and I wonder if you know what a beautiful, beautiful place you go to school at. I mean, I feel like I'm in Lost Horizon or something. I'm in the inner city of Chicago where the latest warning on rats is fairly daunting, even though it's a beautiful city. Thank you for the great honor of being here. And I was very privileged to have Neely as a student and an RA, and I can tell she is well-loved here, as are my other two students, Adele Zittman, well, and my sort of student, Hannah Bloomquist. So it's like returning to friends. I understand that you have a very good philosophy of technology here in chapel, which I was so amazed at when I talked to your chaplain that I haven't quite gotten over it. So I'll spare you the injunction to turn everything off. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, says Philippians 4.8. When I was in high school in the 60s, I went around with a little blue radio glued to my head, transistor radio. It was the iPod of its day, the technological seduction of its time. I almost brought it, but it was so heavy I didn't want to carry it on the train. The radio had been my sister's, and I'm afraid to say I appropriated it. 
I had discovered pop music and it had its grip on me, my drug of choice. As I moved from crush to crush, heat to heat, including my history teacher, my band director, and a boy called Billy, I sang the songs that brought them to mind. I knew all the words, Johnny Angel, how I love him, how I tremble when he passes by. Every time he says hello, my heart begins to fly. No linguistic brilliance there. You have probably never heard the song, no loss, I might add. I had, but I had that radio on as much as possible. When I sat in study hall in Billy's line of vision and he wouldn't even look my way, I went home and with my little radio, I agonized to the tune of Simon and Garfunkel's, I am a rock, I am an island. <laughs> and a rock never cries, and an island feels no pain. In 1964, the Beatles arrived, and by then my longing was for a boy named Frank, and with the Beatles, I wanted to hold his hand. <laughs> it was that time of life, teenagehood with much heady ecstasy, writing free verse in my journal, feeling sad at sunsets and in love or in heat just about all the time. All very normal, kind of wonderful, but incomplete, something that had to mature and change. But the little blue radio, blue radio was not always on because in my home and in my church there were historians, keepers of the gate, guardians of my soul. These were the people who understood that when adolescent heat, excesses, and trendiness pass, we must retain in our memories something bigger and better, something, something not adolescence to have in our keeping as treasures for when we grew up. They made sure our inheritance was not swallowed up by what seemed important in the 60s or at 16. These guardians of our soul knew that popular cultural trends and teenage moods come and go. These seasoned Christians knew they must give us boundaries, a solid memory and understanding of what was better and more mature, classic, more other-centered, they monitored our exposure to pop culture. They understood the importance of dignity, a condition of soul that must take hold of us if we are to live noble lives, which it seems possible to argue every sincere Christian should want to do. As I said, the church and my parents were keepers of my mind and finally of my soul. That job had been entrusted to them by God, and they took it seriously, making sure I knew enough about what was better so that my mind and practices did not turn into mush or sentimental nonsense. They knew that part of dignity was self-mastery. Today, many of you aren't as lucky as I was. There are fewer and fewer historian, historians, guardians of the soul in our churches, homes, and Christian institutions. Many of those older than you aren't doing their duty in warning or protecting you with tough love. In fact, adults seem to be intimidated by your age group. More and more, the contemporary dominates the scene, the home, the church, the latest book, the latest music, the latest CCM group, the latest technological fad. Few people are helping you know what it looks like to be a dignified Christian or to be discerning. Too many of our elders want to be just like you. I, I really don't get it, but they do. Yet youth, as wonderful as it is, is a condition from which you must inevitably recover. And so, many of you, sincere, even earnest young men and women studying at a Christian college 
Many of you, having pledged your lives to Christ, are afloat, unmoored, allowing the cultural icons of your day to dictate your lives, to control the texture and content of your relationships, your choices of what to pursue in your leisure, even your behavior in the classroom and in sacred space, such as chapels and church services. In other words, we are too often living as though the present moment and its cultural offerings are, is, is all there is. What my parents understood was that everything is theological, everything. Everything must be filtered through your knowledge of whom God is. What he teaches is best for those who know him. Everything you do, not just your Bible study, your devotional life, your Bible and theology courses, or your moral behavior. And here is where my thesis comes in. If you want to end up being a dignified biblical Christian, you have to look at the contents of your life through a theological lens, including what you do with your leisure or play and your technology, or you may find in the words of one writer that you are living half-lives that you are trying to pass off as whole. What comes to your mind when you think of leisure? How do you define it? The dictionary's definition of the word is freedom from time-consuming activities, duties, or responsibilities. Downtime is what I hear most people calling it. Having a philosophy of leisure means that as a Christian you have thought theologically and biblically about what you do with the time you call your own, with what you choose as entertainment, with what you do when you relax. If you haven't, you may fall into the moral problem of drift or groupthink, a mentality which follows a leaderless crowd falling into triviality, but even more, the great emptiness that can haunt us as we drift along by chance or circumstance. The pervasiveness of boredom, which I understand your president addressed, is a symptom of our inability to cope with leisure, of our failure to think about it, even for Christians. Sadly, while a fairly extensive discussion exists to guide you in matters of ministry, calling, and work, almost nothing is written about a philosophy, let alone a theology of leisure. The discussion should actually start much earlier in your lives than it does. Every youth group, Sunday school class, would be enriched by such a conversation. Certainly preachers, teachers, conference and seminar speakers seldom talk about it at all. Thankfully, there are a couple of books on the subject. Like education, leisure it takes discipline, training, cultivation of habits, and tastes, discriminating judgments. It is not something one drifts into or you will become a drifter. So contrary to what a lot of people think, what we do with our leisure can have more effect on us than what we do purposefully. What you do purely for pleasure may have the greatest and most insidious effect on you. As obedient Christians, we protect ourselves against obvious evils. Our guard is up if only for a little, but if we haven't done any thinking about a matter, we have absolutely no way to defend ourselves. Philosopher Joseph Pieper argues that leisure is, in fact, the basis of a culture. If leisure goes wrong, everything goes wrong. The way we spend our downtime is a mark of our character. And leisure is not idleness. It's not just passing time. It's not just doing what you want to do. Because if that's the case, out of that comes restlessness, and out of restlessness comes despair. In Pieper's words, leisure is a condition of your soul. 
Why? Because it is a form of stillness that is the necessary preparation for accepting reality. Only the person who is still can hear, and whoever is not still cannot hear. In a book on fasting, John Piper talks about this vividly when he says, the greatest enemy of our hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but mindless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, because by that time one is already on his or her way to ruin, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every day and night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's the small stuff, the everyday things of life, which, he continues, can replace an appetite for God himself. The idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Just as we are what we eat, we become what we do. There's a great deal more I could say about this, and you can ask me if you can find me around, and I'll be around. The theme of it all, in the words of Gregory the Great, is if you do not delight in high things, you most certainly will delight in lower things. Probably the greatest strain on your leisure and perhaps on the integrity of your Christian life today is your relationship to technology, a reality whose consequences are becoming more evident every year in multiple ways, some of which I will detail. To move into this subject, let me start by presenting you with some questions as a sort of self-assessment. What is your theology of leisure? Do you have one? Based on what? What philosophical or theo theological presupposition governs the way you use your free time? What makes you decide whether or not you do the things the culture offers you readily? Does prayer or consulting God or talking to wiser people, or reading philosophical treatments figure in at all? Some of those practices that seem benign are as follows. Use of your cell phone, smartphone, iPhone. Is it always on or on vibrate? Do you keep it available when you're having conversations with friends? Do you answer in public meetings like the classroom, chapel, and church where respect demands that you pay attention to what is going on? How many movies do you watch per week? Use internet, how often, for what purpose? Use Facebook and for what purpose? Do YouTubes, I'm seeing that that's huge. Play video games, how often, for what purpose? What kind of game? Listen to music, how often, what kind, in what setting, for what purpose? How do these activities limit other activities or relationships? What would you do if they weren't available? How necessary have they become to your life? Can you live without them? Can you defend your leisure theologically? And how much solitude or silence do you include in your life? None of this is neutral. What I'm talking about here is the need for you to begin to use discernment about technology. In a little book called Unfriend Yourself, Kyle Tennant defines discernment as an act of the heart and mind in which we uncover hidden motives. And then, quoting Andy Crouch's culture-making, he notes that there are four common ways of changing culture. Condemning, critiquing, copying, and consuming. Clearly, what every Christian needs to do is to critique before he or she consumes. And that may take backing away, even briefly, to get perspective. 
Over the years, I have begun to see creeping changes in students' relationship to the classroom, and since I've been around since Noah, we know that that's a long time. <laughs> the educational process and to the sense of the sacred. Seven years ago, I decided to ask my college writing class to do a four consecutive day media fast. People told me it couldn't be done. Something I now do every year, one class just finished that process and I just read the papers on the plane coming down. The students cannot use their cell phones even to call and text family, and family needs to start letting go of their kids, just as an aside. Listen to music, <laughs> use the internet except for school assignments, Facebook, or watch television and movies. At the same time, they must keep a journal recording what they discover about themselves in the process. With the exception of a few students, the findings are telling and remarkably similar. Most students admit they find themselves nervous and bored at first, even irritated and angry at me, of course. I have never lost any sleep over that. <laughs> Many of them simply don't know what to do with downtime, and even during short waiting times. One student said, even just standing on the corner of a street waiting for the light to change, I felt a strong surge to text, like I had this dependency on wanting to feel connected or comfort in knowing that someone wants to talk to me, ask my opinion, see where I am. More than one student wrote about the spiritual implications of this dependency. The tragedy for me was realizing how much I feel like I need it. Being updated on what everyone is doing in my social sphere has become an idol. I could boldly say Facebook at times is my source of peace. I only feel it when I know everything is okay with my friends because Facebook told me. That, my friends, is religious language. A large number of students experienced relief at not having to be in touch with so many people, particularly their parents. It feels liberating to be disconnected with the rest of the virtual world. After about the third day, some of them talked about how much more they had time they had to study and read, how much more effort it took to actually see someone, how much better a face-to-face -face conversation was, how much time they realized they'd wasted in trivial activity. I have wasted hours of my life on Facebook, YouTube, and music, and how deep the consequences were in their lives because of the better things these nervous and compulsive habits replaced. One student summed up the issues well. It was as if I had ceased treatment of a very low-dosed drug that made me somewhat dull, hazy, and numb. The days seemed brighter, more real, and more important. I had been drowning in media. While these remarks are very telling, much more disturbing were the comments students made through the years on a pre-fast survey in answer to the question about how much they have their phones on, either audibly or in vibrate, in a variety of settings. Many students reported never turning off their phones when they were with friends. A sampling of the comments are as follows. I try not to text while hanging out with my friends, but I often give in to temptation and answer texts. My phone is always on. I'm addicted to, to it. <clears throat> if I get bored, I can text someone or update Facebook or Twitter. Friends, people watching is a great gift. It is intensely full of humor and psychological understanding. <laughs> Whenever my friends and I hang out, a majority of us have our phones right in front of us. Texting and checking my email keeps me truly, from truly settling into worthy conversation. One student wistfully wrote, I, it feels wonderful if I can have a conversation with someone without them texting someone else during that conversation. 
Another one just wrote in a paper yesterday, it removes the mystique of relationship. It paces it too fast. A good friendship needs space. And I could go on forever about what it's done to romance. What is obvious is that while every generation has had its distractions, I had my little blue radio, distraction is the great distinctive of our time. In fact, Nicholas Carr has written a book called The Shallows, referring to the shallow conditioning this generation has allowed to their spirits. Richard Winter, in a book called Still Bored in a Culture of Entertainment, talks about the deadness of soul that haunts this generation, where stimulation comes at us from every side until we cannot respond with much depth to anything. While I suspect that most of the students go back to the familiar, even addictive patterns they have had, a few, having felt the warning, actually give up some facet of what they have done. Apparent is that technology, which has greatly enhanced many processes and institutions but weakened others, is controlling us. We are without a philosophical and theological basis for thinking about it. It has never occurred to most people that what one does with technology may also be a spiritual discipline, that it matters to God what you do with technology, and that, in fact, unremarked sin is going on all the time. Let me explain. Eugene Peterson notes in an article that if there is any significant model for Christ's ministry, it is his focus on the individual story and the person. Then he says that one of the verbal effects of sin is the destruction or fragmenting of story into disconnected anecdotes, the reduction of story to gossip. I would add to that that social management is the turning of genuine story into deceptive image management and narcissism. It's not about the other person, it's about me, one of the great false promises of Facebook. Even more significant, what Mark Christ's life was, as Peterson notes, was focus on a person. He saw the blindness of a beggar on the street. He noticed the desperation in the eyes of Jairus when he asked Jesus to heal his daughter. He took notice of the paralytic who was repelled right in front of him and knew all the past relationships of the woman at the well. He took time to evaluate a person's individual context and address them specifically where they were. How often are we looking undistractedly into the eyes of our friends to see what they cannot say, to ask their story, to know who they are? Most of you are dying to be heard undistractedly, to be treated with dignity. What are we doing to degrade it? Every time you sit across from friends and interrupt your conversation with them to answer your phone, to see a text, to succumb to an almost addictive curiosity about a message that will not change your life, you are not only being rude, but you are also telling that person across from you that he or she is secondary, that what he or she is saying is not important. You are not only interrupting their story, but you are also reducing their importance as a human being causing a, perhaps a kind of subtle internal injury in them that will go unreported. Because we have now begun to condition ourselves to not listening and not expecting to be listened to. I see violation of human dignity all the time, mothers wheeling their children to, in strollers, talking on the phone instead of cooing over that child. Parents, dating couples, families, sitting in restaurants texting instead of talking to each other. People no longer just wait, wait quietly at corners lost in thought. They no longer walk along the lake or in the mountains looking at the nuanced color of the mountains. 
I actually constantly see in my office, on the street, even in faculty meetings, the phone hand twitch, which has sensed a vibration, followed by the eye twitch to see the message. It is a kind of death in life. It is instant gratification, a condition from which we are supposed to recover by the time we're in kindergarten. Attention to both story and person are essential aspects of ministry in human relationship. One courageous Lutheran pastor put it this way, the problem is not attitude or behavior, the problem is sin. Sin is what insists that nothing is more important than what we are thinking, feeling, desiring, or doing at the moment. Not even God is enough for us to turn away from self and quiet our hearts and minds so busy with stuff. Even movie theaters do better than we do in church. So what are some steps to take? First of all, as I mentioned earlier, you must use discernment. So test your level of dependence on electronic entertainment for 24 hours, a few days. See how addicted you are. All my students claim not to be addicted when they go in. 75% admit to heavy addiction, needing a group when they come out. Start turning off your phone for a few hours, gradually increasing the time. Meet with friends and make a pact to put away your phones while you're together. Begin to think about a philosophy of leisure and entertainment. Read Kyle Tennant's little book, Unfriend Yourself. And then read the Gospels and ask yourself the tired old question, what would Jesus do? I had a student who once analyzed the primary examples of addiction to the ring that can be found throughout the Tolkien books. There are four, and I will only deal with two. On an unexpected journey, a hobbit named Bilbo finds the ring after it has slipped out of Smeagol's pocket. And although he does pretty well with controlling his use of its power, he begins to be, quote, comforted by knowing it is in his possession. So when the time comes for him to pass it on to Frodo, his heir, he is conflicted, and when confronted by Gandalf, he says, now it comes to it. I don't like parting with it at all. I may say, I don't see why I should. Why do you want me to? What business is it of yours anyway to know what I do with my own things? And look what else Bilbo says. The comparisons to our relationship to technology are startling. I am always wanting to put it on and disappear, don't you know? Wondering if it is safe, pulling it out to make sure. I tried locking it up, but I found I couldn't rest without it in my pocket. And I, and, sorry, and I don't seem to be able to make up my mind. Here, there are several telltale signs of addiction. Justification, unwillingness to desist, casting blame on others, and physical, mental, and emotional obsession. And though Bilbo ultimately wins the battle, when he later sees the ring around Frodo's neck, he reaches for it in a moment of passion, wanting just to see it for a moment. The most powerful example of the ring's power is Smeagol, who puts the ring to devious purposes to find out secrets. Isn't that what we do so often? Ultimately, it completely corrupts him, leaving him deformed and fetal, infantilized. He had no will, we're told, in this matter. He can't stand to think about being separated from it. And though he experiences a terrific battle at one point, he is wounded beyond healing, we're told. He could not be present to anything but an inanimate object. And it took him. It took him and consumed him. 
The power of friendship, and I cannot tell you how much I believe in that, has a lot to do with saving Bilbo and Frodo, but the other thing that saves them is the memory of their true home. What Tolkien is describing is longing. He talks about memories of wind and trees and sun on the grass and such forgotten things. And oh, sometimes that's what makes me the saddest. Your relationship to technology is keeping you from the wonder of the world, from some of the great delights, the delights of looking up and out instead of down, the delights of noticing people, not texts and Instagrams, the delights of being involved visually in what's around you, nature, not missing beautiful moments, the delights of reading the great books and wonderful writers instead of consuming a disproportionate amount of blogs. And as I always say, everybody's trying to be C.S. Lewis, just read him. <laughs> the delights of true, in-depth, undistracted conversation with friends and those you're attracted to, the delights of the outside world, the shadows of the heaven that is your true home. What I am pleading with you to do is to become at your age, not a product of the culture, someone who is unconsciously bought from the cultural brokers. What I'm pleading with you is to live engaged Christian lives that in the words of Paul in Thessalonians 5.24b, your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we fall into things so easily, not because we want to do ill. But we do love you, but we fail because we don't think. And I pray, Father, that we will come to our lives consciously present to the moment, looking up, not down, looking to you, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Amen.